Welcome to Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast with fraud experts Skip Myers and Chad Evans. This is your guide to fighting fraud and chargebacks. Learn the best fraud prevention solutions and strategies. How to enhance your fraud prevention team. And how to prosecute criminals. Now, here are your hosts, Skip Myers and Chad Evans. Today, we're talking about Join the Movement, Ruin a Bad Guy's Day, presenting your case to law enforcement. So let's get started. Hey everyone, I'm Skip Myers. Hey guys, and I'm uh, Chad Evans. Hey, uh, between both of us, we have about 40 years of fraud prevention experience where we've helped other companies reduce their chargebacks, investigate fraud, and ruin a bad guy's day. So welcome to our podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming in. The Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. So come back often. And feel free to add your podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes account. And also at the end of the uh, podcast, please comment and like this post or podcast uh, if, if you want to. And we really appreciate it. So, Chad, last week we talked about ruining a bad guy's day and how to, how to prosecute fraudsters. But this week we want to continue this because it's so important to put this information together and understand how to present your case to law enforcement. And so often, I think one of the hangups with a lot of folks in our business is really the fear of wondering, how do I present my case to law enforcement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, last week talking about, you know, building a comprehensive case file, a prosecutable case. And then the question becomes, well, what do I do with this? You know, I've put together my, the elements of my crime. I've proved that I'm a victim. Um, I have all my documentation. Uh, I proved criminal intent by the suspect. Hopefully, hopefully, maybe maybe I've identified the suspect um, prior to even reaching out to law enforcement. So now I have this this comprehensive case file, and so the next question is, you know, what do I do with this? Maybe you've made some preliminary phone calls. You know, last week we talked about jurisdiction. Uh, maybe you've called some police departments or some agencies near where your fraudster is receiving their goods or is obtaining their goods, or in um, you know, in the case of online services or downloads, you know, where the, where your corporate location is and you've gotten some interest. Um, so the first question that those officers or detectives or agents are going to ask is, well, what do we have here? That's what we're going to be talking about today is you have this case file now and what do you do with it? You know, sometimes uh, there's simple questions that the investigator is going to ask of you. They're very simple questions, but sometimes you need to be prepared to answer those questions to law enforcement. And a lot of times those questions will ultimately occur in a certain order. Uh, Right, Chad? You know, I know when I was an investigator with law enforcement, I'd always ask these certain questions. But what's your recent experience? Yes, I totally agree. Um, the the first question they're probably going to ask you is is what what crime has occurred here like what what are we talking about or are are you the victim of an identity theft are you at a financial loss um the first thing that the law enforcement agency has to determine is is what crime are we dealing with or crimes are we dealing with because they need to understand what they're looking at what they're looking for and what they're trying to prove so i think naturally that's the first question you're probably going to hear from a lot of law enforcement agencies is well, what criminal activity do you think has occurred against yourself or your organization? That's right. You know, and I, I found too, I guess as a former investigator, you know, I'm more likely to consider your case, you know, after you've done a lot of homework, after you've provided me with a lot of information and, sh- and maybe even showed multiple attempts or multiple actual occurrences of fraud by the same froster, in some cases, you know, to the same uh, ship to address. 
Yeah, and kind of goes back to what we spoke about in part one of this episode, which was that that case file. Um, if you if you reach out to a law enforcement agency and you say, "Hey, I, you know, I don't really know exactly what crimes have occurred here. I don't really know exactly the financial impact. I'm not even sure who this guy is. I just have this address. Here's some information on a spreadsheet. Can you look into it for me?" Those folks have to prioritize work the same as everybody else does, and if if that's the you know, the amount of effort that you put into it, you're probably going to get that amount of effort reciprocated. And it's no fault of their own. They have goals and standards and work performance metrics that they have to be held accountable to. So just know that that case file does that first step of showing the credibility as Skip discussed, the credibility of these individuals that are reaching out to law enforcement. Like, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's done his homework. He knows his business. He knows this, this industry. And I think we'll talk about a little bit later in depth, but that educational piece when you're presenting a law enforcement, because sometimes detectives might have a general idea about uh, credit card fraud or identity theft, but they may have, may have more experience working different property crimes like burglaries or petty theft and not necessarily have a lot of experience with more organized uh, credit card fraud or organized retail crime activity. Yeah, Chad, I, I like to add too that, um, you know, during your conversation with that investigator, you know, always be sure to detail those specifics of your fraud case and how that evidence points to that particular suspect or that, that financial loss uh, to your organization. You know, that investigator will really appreciate that hard work, work you put into the case and all that time you took to explain that those elements of a crime. And, and so Chad, this is a process. And so the next part would be pretty much explaining to the investigator, you know, who's the victim? Why am I a victim? And where's your proof? Right. So again, like, like Skip mentioned, what crimes have occurred? Who is the victim? Why? Where's your proof? Goes back to the case file. So you can see that it probably sounds like I'm a broken record here, but case file and the way you're going to ultimately present that case file is quite frankly, probably the most important step to even gaining interest from a law enforcement agency. Like I said, if you come in there unprepared, if you come in there without this, without this level of information that you're going to provide in this comprehensive case file, um, there's a good chance that it's going to just die in the vine right there with that initial conversation with law enforcement. So like Skip mentioned, who is the victim? Why? Where's your proof? Goes back to what are what is the documentation that you or your organization can provide to show that you're at a financial loss? Is it dispute notifications through chargebacks received from issuing banks or credit card companies? Is it showing the pattern of criminal intent by an individual at a certain ship to address or device fingerprint or IP address? What is that element of proof that you're going to provide to law enforcement to show that you are the victim and why you think that this is that this is a crime. The next step that's really important is really the investigators want to ask, you know, who is this person? Who's this fraudster you're talking about? And how did you come about identifying who they are? Yes, absolutely. And, and whatever tools you can have at your disposal, it could be as simple as Facebook. It could be social media searching. You could be using the ship to address to search open source sites like county assessor's offices to see who the owner of the house is. Um, you could use uh, proprietary database tools. TransUnion has one, LexisNexis, IRB. Uh, I'm sure there's a number of other, other, out, other databases out there that provide the same amount of information where you can run addresses and phone numbers, even email addresses at times and find um, specific, specific information, including name, date of birth, possibly even full or partial social security numbers to be able to provide to law enforcement and then take it the step further, depending on what your organization allows or what your resources allow, 
whether you've done say preemptive surveillance on a, on a, maybe a controlled delivery on an address, or you've watched an individual accept a package at your fraudulent address and you've obtained video evidence of that individual. So you can, you could show pictures of vehicle information, um, license plate information. If your store organization offers in-store pickup, buy online pickup and store, leveraging store associates for physical descriptions or um, in-store video camera systems to provide videographic evidence to law enforcement to show, hey, this is the individual. And it, it, it paints a nice picture when you're presenting that case to law enforcement to say, hey, Chad Evans lives at this address. I ran that address and the county assessor's office, he shows up as the owner. Here's Chad Evans' Facebook account with his picture on there. And here's the picture of Chad Evans coming into my store and retrieving an item he purchased online with a stolen credit card. Now you've just mapped all those points together to show, yes, we've identified this individual. Here's the proof of them obtaining goods. Here's where they live. Um, along with the answer to the other questions we've already had, which is the crime occurred and who is the victim and the proof. Now you've also identified that person um, and, and essentially wrapped a nice bow on that case file for that law enforcement officer. Great information. You know, what's interesting with um, in-store pickup or the acronym BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store, you know, is really gaining popularity uh, with a lot of um, brick and mortar store locations. And what's interesting is that a lot of fraud investigators do, do not leverage the tools and the resources at their disposal at the store level, like you mentioned, Chad, with the videotape uh, surveillance that may be uh, you know, at the store that recorded the video of that particular suspect who made a online purchase in-store pickup transaction and using that video in some instances to dispute chargebacks at another level. In other words, supplying that, that video not only to law enforcement, but even to the um, issuing bank or whoever's disputing that charge. So that, that, that video of the bad guy, or in some cases, it could be an indication of friendly fraud, is very powerful to help you fight that charge back or even win that charge back. And, eat, and obviously, great evidence to really implicate the fraudster. That's actually a great point. Uh, I have personal experience with that. It wasn't a very high dollar um, transaction, but we had an individual that had kind of established a pattern of that. And I use the videographic evidence obtained from in-store video systems to present not only to law enforcement locally to where the, this individual lived, but also um, use that to leverage him once I kind of presented to law enforcement. Law enforcement actually reached out to this individual. He came back to me and I said, all right, remove the dispute that you have on this transaction where you said you never received these goods, or I'll just send the video evidence to the issuing bank and dispute it ourselves. And he actually did that. He sent me proof that he had withdrawn the um, dispute notification on a chargeback through us. So then I uh, reached out to the local detective and said, hey, he withdrew um, the dispute. So we're no longer interested in, in pursuing any kind of criminal charges against him. So it was a kind of a two-pronged approach to uh, make sure we got our legitimate funds out of this transaction that was a case of friendly fraud where this individual claimed that he did not receive goods and was attempting to return them into, into a store. So that's a great point, Skip, of how video evidence can not only be used in the prosecution of individuals, but also to bring dollars back to your bottom line faster than you ever would through a restitution process. Awesome. Hey, so uh, another interesting point when we're dealing with law enforcement, you may hear this uh, from the investigator or the officer when you call that police department. Hey, I've, I've never dealt with online fraud. Can you 
tell me more about or educate me how all this may have worked or how it happened to your company. Have you heard that before? Yes, for sure. And there's a lot of agencies out there that don't have a dedicated financial crimes division or an individual that has a lot of experience with, you know, quote unquote, white collar type of crimes to where they're going to ask you what a chargeback is. What does that mean to your organization? How did this individual get a hold of these credit card numbers? Where did they find this? You know, how did this all happen? What don't you have? Don't you, doesn't your organization have prevention tools in place? Uh, to stop this kind of activity and how did this slip through? So there, there. don't be surprised if um, law enforcement officers come back and, and ask you those questions and just be prepared to answer them because they, they're going to want to understand how the entire process works because after all this, they're going to have to take this case to a district attorney, prosecutor in the prosecutor's office and present it. And they need to be able to explain start to finish all of these elements of the crime um, and all this proof of, of financial loss or being a victim, they're going to have to re-explain everything you're explaining to them to a DA. Exactly. One should never assume that when you make that phone call to an investigator that they know as much as you do about online fraud. So there's a lot of jurisdictions that are much larger than others that may and there's some that are smaller that may not. So, and again, in, in this day and age, a lot of the technology isn't as readily available even to law enforcement to understand what a device fingerprint is or really what's a geolocation IP address have to do anything with an online transaction. You know, how does the email address come into play? The age of the email, is it really something that uh, is fraudulent in nature? How do you prove that? So some of these technologies may be newer to law enforcement and it, and it is really incumbent up, upon you to really educate and bring that investigator into the fold with that knowledge that you have. It really helps you as that investigator really gain a lot more credibility and then helps further that case along uh, for you. Because again, it's, you know, it's how you answer his questions or she, you know, uh, that investigator and ultimately what kind of information you provide will determine whether or not that investigator feels like it's worthy of their time to take on. And again, this information, as we'll explain here in a second, as well, uh, once it is taken on by law enforcement, the next step in that process would be it goes to a prosecutor. And uh, Chad, you want to kind of explain a little bit more about that, the intricacies of, of dealing with prosecutors and district attorneys? Right. So um, just to segue kind of what we said a little bit ago there, Skip, is on the education piece, showing kind of the evolution of technology as well. You know, your assigned detective might ask for maybe. IP address information, and you're gonna to have to explain to them about VPN services and proxying IP addresses and masking the, the location, because he could say, well, the IP address is in Texas, and you're saying this guy lives in New York. What's that about? So that education piece can also involve kind of the evolution of technology and the way that some of these fraudsters have kind of gamed the system. So just something to keep in mind is not only kind of educating them on kind of the intricacies of e-commerce, of the e-commerce space and this world, but also the um, continued evolution of fraudsters and their ability to pivot and maneuver around um, controls. So just something to keep in mind. To your question about the intricacies of working with DAs and prosecutors, it's, in, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, there's, there's a ton of law enforcement agencies across the country. They all have different district attorneys they work with at various levels, uh, various bandwidth. Um, if you imagine like say a Clark County, Illinois versus say a small county in, in Iowa and the number of individuals, they, they may have a really good relationship with each other where 
Um, the detective and the DA trust each other to where they, the DA might not ever question anything the detective ever presents to them and says, yep, write a search warrant or yep, we're going to drop charges and we're going to get this thing going. You're never going to really fully understand the behind the scenes. Maybe there's some, maybe there's some uh, disconnect between a department and a DA. Maybe there's some political, uh, political issues going on between say a sheriff's office and a county district attorney's office. Um, so at times there, there might even be instances where you want to work directly with a district attorney as opposed through to through a detective, depending on the amount of participation or pushback you're getting from a local law enforcement agencies. There's actually been times where I've worked directly with district attorneys who say, oh, yes, this is absolutely a prosecutable case. Um, get back with your detective and let them know you spoke to me and then I'm willing to prosecute. The other thing to keep in mind is, is the same that I mentioned with detectives having prioritization. DAs have to prioritize cases, too. So there might be uh, a string of strong arm robberies in an area or an uptick in, say, serious violent crimes like homicides um, in that particular region to where that district attorney might look at a property-related crime to your organization as kind of a low priority. Like you guys are, you know, uh, they're a multi-billion dollar organization. What do they care about, you know, this, this $25,000 theft case? We can, we can kind of deprioritize it because we're working on some of these violent, violent crimes. So uh, one thing that we will probably get into either later in this episode or in another episode is how to kind of package, package your case with different elements using victims of the actual identity theft to be victims of the crime as well and kind of package that whole thing together. So we could talk about that either uh, on the next, another episode or in this episode of how to kind of do that if you're not getting a lot of participation uh, from your law enforcement agencies. But just things to keep in mind that there could be some some ramifications for working directly with the DA on those relationships you have with the detectives. So you're kind of drawing a fine line when you're making those calls on who to talk to, who to work with. So um, Skip, I don't know if you have any experience with some of that, um, maybe some of the disconnect that police departments might have with local DA offices. Uh, yeah, there's some with that. There's a lot of some political reasons or just a mere fact that uh, one doesn't communicate enough with the other about, you know, fraud type crimes. You know, the, one's priority is maybe working violent crimes. Nonviolent crimes may not take the priority. And, you know, every jurisdiction is going to be a little bit different. Again, it's it's just so important for you to make that attempt if you're willing to prosecute, you know, these fraudsters to make that attempt to contact, you know, that proper jurisdiction, uh, you know, about your case. And one thing that Chad and I have talked about before uh, with some of you, you've never really in person or really spoken to an investigator or, or a DA is, you know, treat that first encounter as if it's a job interview. I mean, it's really like that important. I mean, if it's your first time walking into the police department, you know, you bring that case file, all the information you have uh, at your disposal, be super prepared, ready to answer those hard questions, dress the part, look like that professional, look like that counterpart to that investigator um, in the private sector. I mean, that, that really goes a long way, treating those encounters with law enforcement uh, as if it was a job interview. Uh, I think we think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the way you present your case and how you present your case is just as important as the information you have on the paper that is sitting in front of you while you're doing it. Like we talked about, the credibility piece. If you're educated, you're clear, you're concise, you're confident, um, you're presenting that case like you would a business presentation or, or a job interview like Skip just mentioned, just like you would if someone asked you about, you know, tell me about yourself on a resume and you're basically talking about 
your resume in this case being the case file and being clear and concise and confident in the delivery of that can go a long way to establishing credibility of that department. And the thing that I think to keep in mind about establishing these relationships and building credibility with these agencies is you never know when one, you're going to have another case in that jurisdiction where you can reach right back out to that same detective and say, Hey, you're willing to help me out again. He's not going to hesitate. They've already, he or she's not going to hesitate. They've already established who you are, what kind of a work product you produce, and they're going to be willing to help you because you gave them great information that led to an arrest and a prosecution. And two, you never know who that detective might be networked with, either locally um, in the same county, city, state, maybe even nationally. He could be part of an organized retail crime organization that knows detectives in all the regions. So you could have a case pop up in a neighboring county or neighboring city and reach out and say, hey, do you know anybody that works there? And they'll be able to provide you with an investigator. Now, what's great about that is, is now you're not calling cold turkey to an agency you're actually vetted by another law enforcement officer that's going to tell them, hey, this individual does great work. They're highly educated in the space. They gave me a great case file. I was able to get a search warrant or an arrest warrant, and it led to a successful prosecution. That neighboring detective or investigator is going to be more than willing to take on your case that you need to present to them. Something else to keep in mind, too, is when you're making uh, the case file is Try to use your in-house business center, try to use FedEx, try to use a FedEx office, maybe a Staples location to um, put together a nice presentable binder, just like you would say a portfolio or, you know, if you're going to a job interview and you're going to present them with something. So that also goes a long way to credibility. But I don't know if you had anything to add, Skip, on the networking piece or establishing credibility with those with those law enforcement agencies? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the credibility piece goes a long way with law enforcement when they realize that a business wants to take that investigation a step further. And the step further is actually prosecuting bad guys. Police and investigators want to help you. You have to realize that they, they want to help you. And what's interesting is that what's missed a lot in our line of work uh, is that when you decide to involve law enforcement, you send the message. When you involve the police and prosecute fraudsters, you send a strong message to that criminal element that your organization is not an easy target. Believe me, and Chad can tell you too, that the community of fraudsters out there will spread the news about your aggressive stance against them. I mean, your message will spread quickly through all the fraudster networks, social media, and hopefully will discourage other criminals who may be you know, trying to target your company. We help a lot of different companies look at social media. Um, there's a lot of social media outlets like Reddit at some time, and there's some others we can talk about on another call where criminals actually talk about different organizations and how easy it is to commit fraud against them. So you don't want to be on that list. You want to send that message. You want those bad guys to think the police are within days of knocking on their door. Also, another side benefit when you do involve the police is recovering losses and stolen property. So many times a, a really good fraud investigation nets uh, a recovery of stolen products that the fraudster you know, stole online and had shipped to to you know, undisclosed uh, location. So that criminal investigation of that fraud case could result in search warrants and of shipped to locations, arrest of fraudsters, confessions, and the recovery of your stolen property. Subsequently, that successful conviction of your fraudster could also include restitution back to your company for those financial losses relating to chargebacks or other stolen goods, and sometimes even the time it took for you to uh, investigate that crime. All of these things are so important 
and sometimes overlooked yet. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if, uh, if people are unaware, but there I've submitted victim impact statements on cases where travel expenses associated with having to go out and investigate that individual were included in those victim impact statements. And those, that fraudster, when they were prosecuted, had to pay restitution on those travel expenses. So educate yourself in that space because I think that is a, is a great selling point to your leadership to say, hey, you know, this, this isn't all for naught just because we're just prosecuting individuals. Yes, there's the um, stopping kind of the root cause of that fraud tree, if, if so to speak, where that individual's most likely not going to come back to your organization because you just had them arrested and prosecuted. But right in the moment, you could get financial recovery in the losses you've already accrued because of this individual. So great point, Skip, that not just prosecuting fraudsters to send that message for long-term and future benefit, but also uh, short-term and past benefit in, the term, in, in terms of restitution. In conclusion, too, one thing as a you know, fraud investigator for you know, your organization, remember our job is to make sure this type of fraud doesn't reoccur. So it's so important to include something that we like to call as like continuous improvement. Always improve your processes. You know, listen to the fraudsters. Learn from your previous investigations. Learn from what the fraudsters leave behind in evidence. Through that continuous monitoring of your e-com operations and all the different fraud controls that you have for card not present transactions, some of those ill-conceived processes that may have been unintended at first, you know, you can always amend those or substitute it to avoid future occurrences of fraud. One thing that we always like to tell people is that you should never set your fraud prevention strategy on autopilot. Uh, so many companies will buy a fraud solution in a box and set it on autopilot and forget about it. Uh, we do not recommend that <laughs> through continuous improvement. <laughs> yeah. You want to keep looking at it because the bad guys will always find a way to get through your systems. If you set it and forget it, you won't forget it in six months or a little bit longer when the bad guy finds out what you're not doing and what loopholes you left behind. What you Absolutely. I, it's, I always tell my colleagues, you know, it could take six months for security control to get, you know, vetted and put into place in our space. And it could take them six weeks to unwind that. So you never want to take your eyes off of that fraud solution or your fraud prevention controls because these fraudsters, some of them are really savvy and they find out what those are quickly and they can pivot and move around them um, and basically swish cheese every single one of the, the walls you put in place. Well, thanks, Chad. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's Ruin a Bad Guys radio podcast. Join the movement and ruin a bad guy's day, presenting your case to law enforcement. Next week, we're going to dive a little further into what that really means, the particulars of that evidence, and really understanding how you present evidence to law enforcement, and uh, perhaps a little segue into the fundamentals of testifying in court. Yeah, and, and one thing I'd like to close out by saying is, is keep in mind that law enforcement may not always take your case and not every case you present will wind up to, in successful prosecution, but you're never going to know unless you try and it will be one of the most satisfying and rewarding feelings you'll feel as a fraud prevention professional when you do ruin a bad guy's day. Thanks everyone. Please comment on this podcast and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening to Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast with Skip Myers and Chad Evans. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and colleagues. You can learn more about us at ruinabadguysday.com or visit us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruin a Bad Guy's Day. Join us for another episode of Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast.
The information provided in Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. You should consult with legal counsel or other professionals to determine what may be best for your individual or organizational needs.